All right, why don't you turn to Ephesians chapter 6, please. Ephesians chapter 6, we're going to look at verse 18. The message is entitled, The Armor of God, and this is part 3. Paul the Apostle has um, used the metaphor of a warrior's armor to illustrate the armor of God that he has provided for each believer for the spiritual warfare, from verse 14 down to 17. The entire armor represents the sufficiency of God's word to equip the soldier of God to be victorious in spiritual warfare. Having girded his waist with truth, in verse 14, having put on the blessed place of righteousness, verse 14, having shod the feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, verse 15, having taken the shield of faith, being able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, verse 16, and taking the helmet of salvation in 17, and taking the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God in 17. The armor's all on. Paul now continues to move right into prayer, giving the necessary second part of the equation to be victorious in the spiritual warfare. Every soldier knows that he can have the best weapons to defeat the enemy. But if he does not have good communication with his commander, as he's in the warfare, he can be defeated. Any soldier having good communication with his commander will be able to request the help that he needs, observe the efficiency of the help given and received, and receive critical information regarding the enemy to report back. Communication is critical. Paul is going to talk in this verse all about prayer in the warfare. Prayer is a... uh, Complement to the armor of God, essentially for maximizing the proficiency of the armor in spiritual warfare. Now, some object to making prayer as part of the armor because it is not presented with the metaphor of the armor. But the connection is undeniable. Verse 14 through 17 focuses on what we are to do to prepare for warfare. Verse 18 focuses on how the believer is to be victorious over the enemy. It's the vertical. Communication with God. So they are complements to each other. So Paul declared three things about prayer regarding the Christian soldier here in 518. Let me, 618. Let me read. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end, with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. The three things that he says about prayer regarding the Christian soldier. First, the believer is to pray constantly. The first portion. Second, the believer is to pray vigilantly. Verse 18, the second part. And thirdly, the believer is to pray Corporately, the end of verse 18. It begins with the believers to pray constantly. Notice the Apostle Paul declared to the Christian soldier that prayer is to be their habit of life. Two words, praying always. No exception. Paul revealed the believer is to be dependent on God. 
The word praying literally means to pray to God. The root word is used for prayer in general. It always refers to God, not man. It is an act of worship. The act of prayer calls God to our side to enable and help in the heat of the battle, in the warfare. This is the context. This is not just teaching about prayer in general. This is the warfare. This is for the warfare, in the warfare, through the warfare, all warfare. Jesus is the captain of our salvation. Jesus is our friend. Notice Paul revealed the believer is 100% involved. The tense is the is a participle, present middle voice, once again, as we've seen before. The present tense indicate this is to be going on constantly. The middle voice indicates the very person is the one involved in this activity. No one can do it for him. This is reinforced by the word always, paschairo. Literally, praying in every season. Kairos is season. The other word for timeline is chronology. We get chronos from the chronological line and straight. Kairos is a specific season, a birthday, summer, winter, a feast day, something very specific. Literally praying in every season, the various times and occasions. In the warfare is the context. Be it during oppressive or depressive situations. Be it during times of persecution. We've got to put it back in the context of Paul's day. Praying to be victorious against the spiritual enemy. Against the wiles of the devil that we saw in verse 11. Against the principalities, against the rulers of darkness of this age. Against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenlies in verse 12. Praying to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Verse 13. The evil day, where that battle is hot, severe. Notice the Apostle Paul declared to the Christian soldiers the different kinds of prayers are to be their habit of life. With all prayer and supplication, he says. Paul pointed out the incredible communication access at the disposal of of the Christian soldier. The word with, dia, is a preposition. It would be better translated by. The word by indicates the medium by which God has chosen for his faithful soldier to have access to Jesus during and through the battle of warfare. By. In fact, the Greek sentence begins with by all prayer and supplication, praying, it's reversed. The order's reversed in the Greek. Notice Paul pointed out the incredible arsenal of prayer at the disposal of the Christian soldier. Another word, all. Little word. It means each, every, any committed to prayer with all Wholehearted. All. Not half-hearted. Sometimes you see a, a kid out there is playing ball and, you know, he's playing but his heart's not in it. 
When somebody's heart's in it, man, you, you just, they're, they're into it. Um, he said, with all your heart. There are various um, kinds of prayers at our disposal to avail ourselves in, during, and through the seasons and occasions of warfare. Though Paul um, only mentions two here, there's prayer of intercession, prayers of thanksgiving, and 1 Timothy 2.1. Um, they're all to be at our disposal. And the word for prayers here is the uh, noun form of the previous word, praying, for prayer in general. The word is used of prayer in general, and again, it's always directed to God, never to man in the scriptures. The idea, again, is worship and reverence. When you come before, Jesus says to his disciples, they tell him to pray, Our Father, pray after this man, Our Father, who art in heaven. It's a worship of someone superior to you. There's reverence. He's holy. Jesus used it in Matthew 21, 13. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Luke tells us they continued in one accord in prayer. Acts 1, 14. Same word. Notice the word supplication. Desis is the word. It has the basic idea of personal and specific needs. The word um, can be used of a request from God or man. But in the scriptures, it's only used of God, never of man. Gabriel told Zechariah in Luke one thirteen the same word. Your prayer is heard. What prayer? Elizabeth was barren. She conceived. He was praying very specific that his wife might conceive. <laughs> now, what do you want, Zachary? I don't know, whatever, God. No, no, he's very specific. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. First Peter 3.12. Very specific. The Apostle Paul declared to the Christian soldier that their prayers are to be in the spirit, notice, in their habit of life. Prayer is um, tying everything together here um, by Paul declaring all this. He, he's putting it all together. The life of the Ephesians they had entered into was spiritual through the new birth like yours and mine. Now you might have been religious before and you prayed um, in whatever form you prayed. You prayed to saints, you prayed to virgins, you prayed the rosary, you prayed uh, to a tree or whatever it was. And you were religious. But um, now this is directed to the people who have come to know the living Christ, the one who died for their sins, and they were born again. The armor of God was spiritual, endowed by God. They entered a spiritual life, and now the armor was spiritual, endowed by God. And the enemy of the believer is spiritual, Satan and his angels. Remember, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principality, power, dominions of darkness, so on and so forth. 
Notice Paul pointed out that prayer is not a mere human exercise to express the will of our mind, but rather to align ourselves with the will of God to be directed, guided, and instructed by God in the warfare. Keep it in context. The source and means of communication is divine, not natural here. The sphere of communication is spiritual, opposed to the fleshly ability. The one affecting the communication is the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. They're spiritual, the war is spiritual, the enemy is spiritual, the communication is spiritual. It has nothing to do with this earthly realm. But it will affect the earthly realm. <laughs> but it has nothing to do with it from its source. We are never told to pray to the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Never. Just some Christians do. Thinking they're spiritual. We're never told to pray with the Spirit. We are to pray in the Spirit. As he abides in our body, we are to be engulfed, clothed, under his influence, yet never controlled against our will, but fully influenced by him. Kind of like when we used to drink and get drunk. Before you started drinking, you're in control, right? But you start drinking... Pretty soon, the spirits start taking hold of your, and influencing your speech, your balance, everything. You submit yourself to it, right? That is exactly what the Spirit of God is to do. In fact, in Ephesians 5.18 says, keep on keeping on being filled with the Spirit of God. Do not be drunk with wine in excess, but be filled with the Spirit of God. A continual active presence. Moses, remember, interceded for Israel at Mount Sinai. And he, um, he was pleading with God to forgive Israel. And in Exodus, I think it's 32, 32, he said, um, and, and if you will not forgive them, then blot my name out of the book of life. As if God was going to say, okay, no, no, Moses, I'm sorry. Okay, I'll forgive them. What did God say? I'll be merciful to who I will be merciful. Right? I'll blot out who I'll blot out. Now, question. Where do you think that prayer came from? It's, it's real simple. It's one or, or the other. It came from Moses or it came from God? I propose it came from God. God, through his spirit, put it in his heart to lift it up to the Lord. So that God could do what he wanted to do, forgive. Because if you go and say that it came from Moses, then you have to conclude that Moses was more compassionate than God and more patient. Which way you want it? <laughs> Prayer begins with God, not with man. Never. The Christian soldier 
To be victorious in the warfare must not only put on the whole armor of God, his word, but also pray consistently as we present the gospel to sinners. For Satan is ever present to hinder people from being saved. Jesus um, taught the parable of the sower in Matthew 13. He says, when uh, anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away. By the way, that word snatches away is the same word for the rapture, harpazo. Snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who receives seed by the wayside, Matthew thirteen nineteen. Four soils. One never sprouts life. Satan snatches it away, the birds from the ground to the air. Suddenly, violently. That's what will happen when we're raptured. The other three did give life. Now, if you're a Calvinist, you're going to say, no, only one did. The fruit one, 30, 60, 100 fold. Really? So when a woman has a baby and she conceives and that, that egg and that sperm come together and, and it's, it's, it's just the first day, 48 hours, that's not a human being? If it dies, of course it is. If she miscarriages at nine months, was that not a baby? Of course it was. If a child is born and dies at one year old, was it not a baby? Of course it was. Only one did not sprout. Satan's always there to rob the seed from the heart. Satan had a, a post Paul trying to get back to them, remember, as he was directed by the Spirit of God to go there. Um, in First Thessalonians 2.18, it says, Therefore we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again, but Satan hindered us. Satan is not only there to rob the gospel from the heart of those who are listening, but he's there to try to deceive them after they receive the word of God. Among the thorns, among the cares and the riches of the world. Paul was very concerned they might have been deceived by Satan. First Thessalonians 3, 5. Listen, now, if those Thessalonians were eternally secure, why would Paul be worried about them? Listen to his words. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter, Satan, the wicked one, had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. Does Paul just use psychology? Is he giving a hypothetical situation? Or is he concerned about a real possibility? You must ask real questions to your text. Not the same questions that people make up that are circular reasoning. 
If you speak to your text, it'll answer you. If you ask if something's not even related to it, then you get your own answer. Notice the Christian soldier. To be victorious in the warfare must accompany the armor of God's word with every form of prayer for the various situations as well as the severe, intense battles in life. Living in an attitude of prayer, ready to be guided by the Lord. The minute you get up in the morning, you should say, Lord, fill me with your spirit. Go before me. The minute you, your feet hit the floor, because the warfare begins. Sometimes even when you're sleeping. Living right so that petitions or intercessions are instantly before the Lord. So an attitude of prayer that no matter what happens in my life, what's going on, where I'm going, that I'm, I'm ready to shoot prayers up to God because I'm right with God. Okay? Proverbs 3, 5 through 8 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths, make it straight and smooth. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. The complete trust in prayer. Trusting God to direct and guide. The believers, to be victorious, must equally pray on every occasion in all seasons regardless of the circumstance conditions or seeming impossibilities God is not reluctant to answer our prayers he does not need to be pestered like um, the friend who would not get up to give his friend bread until he was going to wake the whole house all right all right I'll give you bread or the um, unjust judge that, um, because this woman kept bugging him, that he finally says, I'll avenge her just to get her off my back. God's not like that. Do, do you think God answers? He says, okay, I'll get rid of him. Gabriel, give it to him. Now, sometimes we as fathers and mothers do that to our kids, which is wrong. <laughs> and we shouldn't. But you never have to fear God of doing that. There in Luke 18, 17 of the unjust judge, it says the punchline, And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bear long with them? So in other words, you don't have to bug God to avenge his wrath on the wicked. He will do that. He doesn't do it every day, though sometimes he does. Romans 1 tells us the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. But one day he will deal with all unrighteousness in one day. God is ready and willing to hear and answer our general prayers, intercessions, and specific petitions. And our giving of thanks. The position of or the proposition of the parable of the wicked judge was, men always ought to pray and not lose heart, be discouraged or faint. 
Luke 18.1. That was the proposition. So in other words, regardless of the circumstance, we are to trust God's on the throne. And though the thing, situation, or whatever may be, looks bleak, I know that God's for me, not against me. And if I'm walking with God, then he will be faithful in a sovereign way. I may not always understand it. It may not even make any sense to me. But I know who he is. In Acts 6, 4, it says, when they were fighting over the uh, dispute of the Greek and the Hebrew widows, he says, but we will give ourselves continuously to prayer and the ministry of the word. Prayer comes first. The vertical. Then the horizontal. Lord, open my eyes so I can understand your word. Lord, guide and direct me through your spirit. They go together. The believer to be victorious in the warfare must put on the armor of God's word and pray in the spirit to be helped in his weakness. It's singular in Romans 8, as we'll see. There's a, a general command in the epistle of Jude, one little chapter. In verse 20, it says, Pray in the Spirit to build up yourself in your most holy faith. Verse 20. It's a general command given to every believer. The implication is that command can be obeyed by every believer. Pray in the Spirit. Now, we know that those who have their gift of tongues, not everybody has the gift of tongues, those who do, they can pray in the Spirit, and they can sing with the Spirit, or they can pray with the Spirit, okay? Very clearly, Paul says he can do that. So Paul could pray in tongues and sing in tongues. He could pray and in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek probably, and maybe others, <laughs> okay? So, if in fact it's a general command that all can fulfill, and only some Christians have their gift of tongues, and they fulfill it that way, how is it that the rest of Christians can fulfill it? I believe that Paul gives us the only text that provides the answer. It's in Romans 8, 26, and 27. It says, We do not know what we should pray for as we ought. Ought is obligation. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered according to the will of of God. Most of the time people use this text for tongues and they time together. But the text has nothing to do with tongues. 
in the context. I think it speaks more about the believer's inability to articulate or even know what or how to pray, as the text says. And in those painful, desperate groanings before God, the Spirit intercedes according to the will of God. It's the only way I can satisfactorily explain the general command in Jude verse 20 to everybody. If it's a command to all, and not all have the gift of tongues, then there must be a way that others can fulfill it. And I believe it's right here in Romans chapter 8. Chapter 8 has nothing to do with tongues, though everybody ties them always together. By the way, the weakness is singular. We don't know how to pray the way we should. So we need the Spirit's help and direction. So the believer is to pray constantly. Secondly, the believer is to pray vigilantly. The Apostle Paul notice declared to the Christian soldier an important warning in being faithful to pray always in all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Listen to the words, being watchful to this end. Paul is saying to cease to be dependent entirely on the Holy Spirit is how the believer fails to pray. We kind of just start making decisions on our own. Well, that's not really important. Well, I don't need to pray. We're no longer totally committed to the Spirit. The phrase being watchful is the cause and the result of the Holy Spirit leading and directing the believer in prayer. The phrase being watchful is another participle, like praying at the beginning of the verse. These are not two separate things. Look at them real close. But both describe the same one thing. Praying always. Watchfulness is because you're praying. You're able to see. They're describing the same thing. The participle is present active to be going on continuously. Paul is describing the state of alertness brought about by the Holy Spirit that is absolutely indispensable. The word watchful means to be sleepless, to keep awake, be attentive. Not in a physical way, but rather to be awake and alert spiritually about the presence and activity of the spiritual enemy of fallen angels, demons, and Satan. Context, context, context. The fact that prayer and supplications were directed by the Holy Spirit will result in being spiritually vigilant. It is easy to fall, sway, drift from being spiritual to being carnal. It's the easiest thing to do. In fact, it's natural. The watchfulness in and through prayer will ensure the accomplished goal indicated by the phrase, 
this end. Notice what he says. Watchful to this end. This end points back to everything that preceded. The word appears three other times in the New Testament. Two times for watching to be ready for Jesus coming for his church. In Mark 13, 33 and Luke 21, 36. The interesting thing about both of these texts and passages is that prayer is tied with the watching. Prayer and watching. The third time it is used for overseers watching for the souls of the believers in Hebrews 13, 7. Now notice Paul the Apostle declared to the Christians the Christian soldier, the manner by which he was to be watchful in the spirit and prayer, with all prayer and supplication. So Paul says <clears throat> here, with all perseverance. The word has the idea of steadfastness, having stamina. You get a guy out there playing soccer or basketball, and you see him sucking eggs after 10 minutes, you say, hey, go run some laps. You got to build up your stamina, your lungs, your endurance, your muscles. You got to exhaust them so they can grow and more oxygen through the blood is delivered to the different parts of the body. A good word for perseverance would be stick to itness. Hanging tough, if you will. Remaining spiritually alert and vigilant to not be lulled to sleep. A lot of believers are just, they're just having a great time in the kingdom of God. They're just having so much great time in churches with activity and all this stuff while the enemy is just doing havoc. Ignorant. They're not vigilant. This is the only time it appears in the New Testament in this form. The word perseverance implicitly conveys personal spiritual responsibility then. To pray always, to pray with all prayer and supplication, to pray in the spirit, to be watchful unto this end with all perseverance. The word perseverance is also the evidence of the strengthening of the Christian soldier supernaturally in the battle and warfare. You see, this perseverance is not the result of the natural man. Perseverance is the result of the virtue and quality of the third person of the Holy Spirit. Perseverance is this virtue that comes from the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit that endows us, empowers us, enables us, illuminates us. Notice Paul says, with all supplication... The word, again, is theses that we saw before as having the basic idea of personal, specific petition. 
The word is used only for God again in the scriptures, and the word is used for the practice of the early church. These all continue to one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. The book of Acts. You see it there. The word is used by Paul in order to have peace of mind and heart. In uh, Philippians 4, 6 through 7, he says, But be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. There's the word. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So you have all three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, all doing their part. The word supplication also implicitly conveys personal spiritual responsibility, as we saw before. To pray always with all prayer and supplication, the Spirit, and to be watchful to this end, to make sure that you stay on track praying and supplicating and watching, never being caught off guard by our spiritual enemy or angelic forces or the wicked one, Satan, on guard. If you were a soldier and served, and especially if you went to war, you know how important it is for a soldier to be alert. You're always in a war zone. You're not always in a battle or a war, but you're always in the war zone, and the enemy is always around. You become careless. You can cost lives of others as well as your own. And many times... Policemen who have been on the force for long periods of time let their guard down in a normal stop. They just don't take the precautions and they end up being killed or shot because you don't stay alert. You remember the servant of Elisha um, as they went to the city of Dothan and the Syrian army surrounded him. And um, Elisha's servant says, Alas, my Lord, we're dead. Elisha says, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And then the Lord Yahweh opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. All the good angels. <laughs> More than the bad guys. Open his eyes, Lord. Wow. One night God sent out one angel who killed 185,000 frontline rugged Assyrian troops. One angel. Probably three feet high. 185,000. Wow. Some of the hardest battles take place in the home of some Christian soldiers living in an unequally yoked marriage sometimes. And the unsaved maid goes out of their way to make life unbearable for the saint. 
sometimes a husband or a wife comes to the Lord and the other one does not. Sometimes a Christian marries a non-believer and then they're in the marriage. But either way, sometimes the hardest battles are in unequally yoked marriages. Very difficult. Having uh, teenage kids that are disrespectful, dishonorable, or they refuse to live under the standards of the Christian home. Great warfare. You need to go to God. Have him direct you. Go to the Word. Dealing with unsaved ex-wives and husbands that do everything to antagonize the saved parent and make it difficult regarding financial support and the bad influence over the children. Battle. A real warfare today. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says, We do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16. There are the battles in the warfare, workforce. As you're working out there in the secular world. Sometimes Christians are targeted just for being Christians and not wanting to go along with the course and vulgarity of the um, workforce environment. Sometimes they get marked. But Jesus tells us that if they hated him first, don't be surprised when they hate you. Peter says that we're to, we're to live in such a way as to prove them wrong, by the way. Other times, Christians are fired or demoted because they don't want to lie, um, go along with the dishonest practices, or place themselves at a, an, an immoral, compromising position. Today, it's nothing for bosses to want their secretaries or female employees sometimes to um, meet them at places or go on, they have to go fly together or something. And today, nobody thinks about it, but as a married woman, you have no business flying with any other man. Compromising positions, positions that you can be accused of falsely and everything. Now, the world doesn't think anything of it, no big deal. But um, we as Christians should be a lot wiser than that. And still other Christians who own their own businesses, um, they lose jobs. They're slandered by some of their employees. Listen to Jesus, Matthew 5, 44 through 46. He said, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for he makes his Sun rise on the just or the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Wow. 
What, what do we expect? Do you think people are going to hug you because you're Christian? Congratulate you? Take you out to dinner? Come and mow your lawn? There was a time in America where uh, being a Christian, people um, respected you, even though they might not have believed in God. Those days were over. Christianity is a target in America today. The enemy would like the Christian soldier to quit and give up. Satan's a liar and a deceiver. He wants you to not fight for your marriage through prayer. Just quit. He wants you to make your own decisions instead of waiting on God in prayer. He wants you to depend on your own strength and wisdom rather than pray to God for wisdom. James puts it this way, if any of you lack wisdom, let a mask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Isaiah 40, verse 31 says, But those who wait on the Lord, talking about prayer, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up on wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Notice the source. It's from heaven to the earth, not earth to heaven. The believer is to pray vigilantly. Third, the believer is to pray corporately for all the saints. All this context is warfare. The Apostle Paul declared to the Christian soldier they are to be praying for believers, for all the saints. All prayer, Paul uses the word all four times. All prayer, all supplication, all perseverance, all saints. Paul was saying the warfare can only be won if one is totally determined to oppose and defeat the enemy wholeheartedly. The Christian soldiers to not think any specific need in prayer to be too difficult or impossible for God. I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too difficult or hard for me? It's a rhetorical question. Don't say yes. The answer is no. The Christian soldier is to endure with all steadfastness through prayer. The Christian soldier is to intercede faithfully for every believer. Notice Paul knew the church of Jesus was not limited to the church of Ephesus. There were sinners that had been saved and now saints at Colossae, Philippi, Thessalonica, Corinth, Galatia, and many others scattered throughout the Roman Empire. The city of Ephesus was a port city, as you know, and it received news much readily than others because people would travel, they come by, and they would bring news what's going on here and there. And so um, Ephesus would receive probably a lot more news about different Christians and things that God was doing. And maybe someone, you know, was executed for his faith, or maybe somebody's being persecuted, somebody said, whatever it is. 
So this whole concept that, that, that life is bigger than you. you. There's the others. Um, the other saints in the body of Christ. Some would be suffering. Some would be persecuted. So they're to pray. Because during Paul's time, um, they already, if they were Jews, they were persecuted from their own Jewish uh, families. They considered you as dead. Um, they hated Paul. They thought Paul was a renegade Jew. Traitor. When um, they had that riot in the temple, they said he's not fit to live. Kill that man. Noted the Apostle Paul declared to the Christian soldier, there was no distinction in Christ here. Paul tells the Christian saints that they are saints. The word saint means holy one. Get your word holiness, sanctification, all from the same root. Hagios. It only applies to sinners who have repented from their sins, trusting the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross as death or resurrection for justification. Putting my entire faith that he died in my place and is able to forgive me of my sins and to give me eternal life. The saints by their transformed lives have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit to live a life holy and pleasing to God, not as they used to in sin as a habit of life. There's a very sharp contrast, B.C. days and afterwards. If your life is not a contrast of what you used to be, either you haven't been born again or you're really carnal and backslidden. I'll let you tell me which one it is. One of the two. The theme of Ephesians is Jew and Gentile, one in Christ, as we noted in our introduction and we noticed as we went through the entire book. The church is comprised of Jew and Gentile, united, one in Christ. Jew and Gentile, one. Having broken down the wall of separation, making the two one, a new man, making peace, Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. The two one, Jew, Gentile, one in Christ Jesus. There was a horrible hatred between the Jew and Gentile. God broke down that middle wall. Jew and Gentile, one. No distinction, no inferiority between Jew and Gentile before God. Greek or Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian. You know who the Scythians were? The northern region of the Crimea there, by uh, um, south of Russia there, they would um, decapitate their captives and uh, boil the skin off and use their skulls for drinking goblets. They could be saved. Paul says no difference if they repent. Wow. Slave free, male, female. All one in Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.28, Colossians 3.6. You see, the believers are seen as blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Paul pointed this out in the very first chapter, verse 3, verse 20, 2, 5, 3, 10, 6, 12, over and over again. Jesus is the head of the church, the head of the body. Ephesians 1, 22, 
5.23. He's the one that calls the shots. Jesus is the one who gives the orders. The believers are the part of the body that obey and carry out the orders as he directs and guides them. The church is seen in various metaphors as we've seen through the six chapters. The family of God, Ephesians 2.19. The building and temple of God, Ephesians 2.21. The fullness of Christ, Ephesians 1.23 and 4.13. The bride of Christ, Ephesians 5.23 and 28. The army of God. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. The church of God and of Christ, nine times. The body of Christ, nine times. All these metaphors. Hidden it from different perspective and vantage points so you understand the fullness of who the people of God, the church, the bride of Christ is. You remember Daniel prayed three times a day at a great cost. He was accused falsely. He also prayed in supplications to God knowing that the captivity was almost up. And because he was vigilant and alert, God gave to him the 70 weeks of Daniel that we have in chapter 9. You notice that Paul began the epistle of Ephesians with prayer for the saints to comprehend all that is at the disposal of the believer their wealth in Christ Jesus, they, they walk worthy of the Lord Jesus and do good warfare to fight the good fight of faith against the enemy. Listen to his first prayer, chapter 1, verse 17 through 19. He says that the God of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. The resurrection. This is what Paul says is possible for you and I to understand, comprehend, and live by as we pray and as we study. The second prayer comes in chapter 3, verse 14 through 19. He says, For this reason I bow my knee to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through the, his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width, the length, and the depth and height to know the love of God, Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Wow. So much for us, the wealth of the believer. The Word of God tells us and we're to seek the Lord for it. The believer is to be victorious and if he is to be victorious, he must pray to, to be spiritually awake. Knowing the spiritual enemy is ever-present, ever-vigilant, and dead serious about your destruction. 
We know we can stand against the wiles and the stratagems of the devil. Ephesians 6.11 says. We're not ignorant to the devices that of Satan that he should take an advantage of us. 2 Corinthians 2.11 tells us. We understand we do not wrestle against flesh and blood as Paul told us. Therefore, 2 Corinthians 10.3-5 says, For through Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God by pulling down the strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Weapons are spiritual. The Word of God, prayer, the power of the Spirit. The armor of God. So we must depend on God through prayer at all times. Peter put it this way, chapter 5, verse 6 through 9. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Here comes prayer. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Be sober, vigilant, Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfastly in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. He's talking to Christians, not non-believers. So the believer is to pray corporately. See, sometimes we're focused so much in ourselves, the poor me's, that we're drowning in our poor me's. And there are people who have it a thousand times worse than we ever have it. You look in, you get depressed. You look up, you get edified. Look out. Very, very important. And so Paul declared three things about prayer regarding the Christian soldier in this spiritual warfare. The believers to pray constantly, the believers to pray vigilantly, and the believers to pray corporately. Get out of yourself. It's Jesus first, others second, you're last. You'll have you'll be happier. You really will. Father, thank you for your grace, your love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts, and we thank you for your word, Lord. Lord, I thank you for this epistle, Lord, just through the um, time that we've spent, Lord. We thank you for your patience and your diligence to instruct us, and we pray, Lord, now that we would not let it go to waste, that we would apply it to our lives. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, if you're here tonight and you believe Jesus Christ is Lord of you, and he died for your sins, and he's able to forgive you, you can call upon his name right now. It's called repentance. If that is your desire, right now, you can ask him to forgive you. This is your prayer to him, and he's going to forgive you for your sin, give to you eternal life, and make you a new creation in Christ Jesus. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. 
Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.